Hello, legends. Today, I catch up with Cub member Gemma Manning, a serial entrepreneur and expert into entering the Asian markets, especially Singapore for business. Gemma is the CEO of Manning & Co., a marketing consultancy firm that works with some of the largest corporations in Singapore and elsewhere. She's also the CEO of Gemstar, a consultancy firm that helps Aussie companies enter the Singaporean and Asian markets, and CEO of Young Gems, an entrepreneurial education business. Gemma and I discuss how passion and purpose are the start of every business, getting out of your comfort zone and the importance of it, and how to enter the Singaporean and Asian markets as an Australian business. Gemma also shares her incredible story as an entrepreneur, overcoming many adversities and how resilience and work ethic were the keys to her success. She's an incredible human being that I thoroughly enjoyed talking to. So I hope you enjoy the show. So I heard that you went to Richard Branson's house, and, or you went to his island anyway. Yeah, it was a few years back now. It was maybe 2015 thereabouts. I was one of 30 Australian entrepreneurs selected to go to uh, Richard Branson's private Necker Island and probably an experience I'll never forget. Now, what was it like? Did you meet him? Yeah, yeah. He was there for the full week, um, so it was quite uh, it was quite special. I don't think he's always there um, with these groups, so... It was, uh, yeah, it was an experience, as I said, I'll never forget. I think they say what goes on NECA stays on NECA. Um, <laughs> so I think there is that, um, you know, I mean, it's one of the most magical places I think in the world and for a place for entrepreneurs to go to be unplugged, connected with incredible, incredible minds, people from around the world. Um, I actually pitched an idea to Richard during that time. So that was um, a social impact venture. That's uh, a business that I've been working on in the background all these years and that's called Light Years. Um, Light Years? Light Years, yeah. So that's about helping um, yeah, disadvantaged women kind of re-enter the workplace and um, being able to kind of provide a safe and nurturing environment for women to thrive. Um, so I had a whole pitch around that um, and I guess, yeah, I spoke to him several times during that week with him about the idea and I think what I took away from all of that was that He's, he's, he was there to support and mentor from afar, but I know that the hard work has to be done by the entrepreneur themselves. So since then, um, well, actually he, so I've built the education platform for light years um, through my brand Young Gems. So Young Gems is a real world entrepreneurs program. So that was kind of the starting points for me after pitching the idea to him and knowing, well, I wanted an education platform to then be able to take into marginalised communities and being able to um, empower, I guess, whether it's disadvantaged women or, to be honest, any other uh, marginalised community through the power of entrepreneurship. So I've built that program since being on NECA. So NECA was definitely a turning point in my own entrepreneurial journey. Um, and with Young Gems, I, well, my company was the first to take Young Gems into the deaf and hard of hearing community here in Australia. And um you know, he, he's across these kind of things from afar and he, um, yeah. Oh, he stays, he stays interested. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I have a word to pick with that guy <laughs> because we did so, um, actually it would have been maybe like a year after you were there or, or maybe two years after you were there. They came to us and were like, hey, you know, um, we'd love to give you the ability to invite members of Cub to, mm. to, to Necker and, and, and why not? 
And it's very expensive as well to, to stay there, as you know. Anyway, I can't remember how many people we ended up sending. It was something like nine on that one first season. So it was a fair few people. And and these people paid. I can't I can't remember how much it was, but it was enough for me to go, hmm. The next season, they come back to us. I can't remember the lady's name. I really can't remember a lot about this story. But anyway, there was a lady there. She's the lady. She organized it all. Yeah. Anyway, the next season, she's like, oh, you know, Daniel, we want to do it again. And I was like, that's fantastic. I'd be happy to do it. But listen, we sent you a lot of people who paid a lot of money. You know, all I ask for is that Richard sends a quote, like a, like a quote from yeah. himself saying he's met uh, you know, many cub members and all of them have been amazing people, amazing entrepreneurs. I said, if you do that, I'll, I'll send more this time. I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. Anyway, she took like a week or two weeks or whatever. And she's like, oh, look, I'm sorry. We just can't do that. We're not allowed to get quotes from Richard. I was like, well, I'm not sending any people then. And ever since then, we've had a bit of a beef going on. So when I see Richard, which I will, I'm going to have a strong word with him. (laughs) Give me a quote. (laughs) That's all you want. But he's, I know he's a beautiful person. Everyone I know that has ever gone there um, has said how involved he is in the program. And and, um, a couple of members actually went this year. Uh, or last year, and and uh, we had members come back, and they've got amazing photos going down like slippery dips, drinking, and <laughs> costumes. Like they, they they do get up to fun there. Absolutely. <laughs> What's the saying? You know, work hard, play hard. Yeah. <laughs> no, good. That's fantastic. Yeah. And and so I know that you uh, you, you mentioned the Young Gems um, initiative. Is it a business or is it a hmm. initiative? It's a business. So there's been a, a, a journey, of course, behind the Young Gems brand as well. And I guess um, how that all started was uh, when I, I was living in Singapore. So so my business, which sure will probably cover off maybe a bit of Asia later, but essentially I started my business here in Sydney and expanded into Asia and was based in Singapore for, for five years. But when I got up there, um, I was approached to create a program um, based on entrepreneurial experience at that point. And that was how Young Gems came to be. But it... Um, turned into basically uh, a diploma in Singapore. So we conducted the program um, for partners at the time that were in Singapore and Australia. So we basically built the program, delivered the program. Um, our young gems in terms of the quality of their pitches um, got attention there locally. And then we partnered up with Kaplan um, to basically make our program a diploma with them um, that was accredited by the Singapore government. So that was quite exciting. And then that's also, I guess, how we deliver Young Gems, um, especially during COVID. You know, it has gone to a digital delivery, but we do hybrid. Um, So that has taken the program into um, all sorts of different communities around Australia and Asia. Um, So I was just in Indonesia, for example, and we were running a Young Gems challenge. So there is, um, it is a business. Um, We do take it though, like I was saying um, earlier into, well, I guess I'm very passionate about inclusive entrepreneurship. As as a female entrepreneur, I have experienced my own fair challenges um, over 15 years in doing this. So I've seen the good, the bad and the ugly. And I've also seen how, unfortunately, in in this um, entrepreneur innovation space where there's pitch competitions and and corporates and academia, you know, playing in this space. I've seen a lot of people's dreams be crushed along the way, unfortunately. So, so for me, it's about, um, I wanted to fill a gap through my own personal experiences I had identified, which was making sure that entrepreneurship does break down barriers. It is inclusive. It shouldn't just be for certain demographics. Um, 
And how does Young Gems do that? Is Young Gems like an entrepreneurial uh, program where you you, you kind of learn fundamentals of entrepreneurship and things like that, uh, uh, focused on young people and and startups or? Uh, Not necessarily. So I know the name. um, It'd be middle-aged gems. (laughs) (laughs) It's uh, for people with new new to business, I guess, is the reference of young. So people with new ideas, new may, maybe a mid-career and wanting to explore a business idea but have never gone into business, business themselves. So um, we've had people of all different age groups go through Young Gems. Um, it did start with a very strong um, cohort of, of young people going through university because some of our early partners were universities at the time. But I guess in terms of how we're – I think the feedback I've received about the program um, – and how maybe it's a, it's a bit unique is that we, I guess it's one that's safe and nurturing environment. So we don't criticise, we, we provide constructive feedback. But like I was saying, from seeing other programs that are pretty aggressive and ruthless and um, whatnot, where again, kind of provide that safe, nurturing space where, you know, everyone's got passion and, and purpose and we try to unpack that in the program and then we try to really nurture their ideas by, yes, at times we might have to say, let's look at your competitive landscape a little bit more thoroughly here and maybe you might need to tweak something there because there's somebody that's doing exactly the same thing there, for example, but always with a sense of care um, and real nurture. And then I guess with all of that, um, we're about transforming people throughout the program. So actually, to be honest, not everybody will go into their own business going through this either. It's actually about life skills and it's about skills that are transferable to other industries. Um, I'll give you an example. We, When we were doing Young Gems for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing, I had this beautiful young um, young man in, my, in, in the cohort and he was maybe about 18 and he's generationally deaf. Um, he was really... A, What's generationally deaf? Uh, born deaf. Okay. Born deaf. So um, he came in and he, he was a bit sad. He was a bit... Not 100%. Um, the light wasn't really switched on inside him when he came into the program. He wasn't shining probably as brightly as he did when he left the program. So uh, his parents, after, after doing the program, his parents came up to me at the graduation for our Young Gems and said, whatever you've done, you've, you, your program has transformed my son. We've never seen him so engaged, so happy, um, so shining bright. And, I mean, it gives me goosebumps talking about it, but I think – what we did during that program is, you know, we, we really look at people as the individuals, you know, really look at what is your passion, what is your purpose, really try to, to figure out about themselves really to begin with before we get to a business idea. But with um, Hamish, we uncovered that his passion was sport, sport leadership. So we kind of connected him with one of our advisors who was a former professional athlete. Um, we also identified that he wanted to use leadership in sport to help kids um, who maybe be going through tough times. So anyway, we kind of, through all of this, carved out what what he really is passionate about and wants to do. And then he got a job opportunity, which was exactly that as a result of going through the program. So maybe he didn't go and create his own business, but I guess that's not the point for us either. It's about unleashing an entrepreneurial spirit and that passion and purpose. Yeah, I think it's about finding your passion and purpose because not everyone uh, wants to be a business owner or an entrepreneur, nor should they be. You know, and but everybody would be happier if they understood themselves better and understood what they what what, what they would have passion working on. Absolutely. And so, it, it really it does beg the question. It's like yeah. before, like I remember when I was starting Cub, I couldn't think of what company to start. Like I knew I wanted a company, mm. and I thought for a like it, it, maybe a year, 
I thought about like, I really want a company. I know I'm supposed to be an entrepreneur, but I just don't know. Like I don't have an idea for a business. And I, obviously I wanted to do something new and it wasn't like, I didn't want to open a, a real estate agency or, a, you know, something that was there. I kind of wanted something new and uh, not that there's anything wrong with real estate agencies. In fact, they're all killing it over the past five years, but, but I probably should have done that. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, what got me to, to Cub was more so who I was serving. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I thought, well, I love entrepreneurship. Why do I love entrepreneurship so much? Well, I love business and I love the people who do business and who are my idols where they're all the business people. I said, well, who cares what I do? Let's just do something that serves those people. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of how it came to Cub. So it, I guess it was a, maybe if I attended your program, it wouldn't have taken a year. Yeah, I think that that whole really just taking time to to understand yourself. I don't think we're given that opportunity really throughout even our education and, and early work careers. So I think that's where this program gives people the space to, like we really focus on entrepreneuring you, like you as the entrepreneur or intrapreneur or, you know, just in life, what what makes you tick, what drives you, what motivates you. Um, you know, what is your personal brand? We actually look at your personal brand and with storytelling, we do all of those things in that first part of our program, which I think really sets people up for an understanding, again, themselves at a more granular level and, yeah, what what really are you passionate about? Um, what makes you happy? I mean, I, know I was given this exercise once to write down 50 things that, um, that I'm good at and, and you know, these things are actually quite hard to do and you have to stop and think about it. Um, so we, we do spend a bit of time on that. But again, what, what so our three Ps around entrepreneurship is passion, purpose and problem solving. So that whole passion and, and purpose bit, you know, we, we cover off and then, yeah, we get to the nitty gritty around, okay, well, what problems do you want to solve and then how are we going to do it? And then, you know, get into those more traditional business mechanics of, entrepreneurship, but definitely the entrepreneur in you, I think is, is what I've been told is probably one of the most transformative parts of our program. I would imagine that. I would love mm-hmm. the business stuff personally. Mm-hmm. I, I always found that the most challenging, but, um, but I think most people are just looking for their path in life and for yeah. their purpose, you know, and, and that I can see how that would be the most yeah. important. And I've always wondered, like, th- there's a lot of business programs and, and kind of courses when you to sit down and actually create one, what was that process? Like what process did you go through? Like what were you like, okay, this is needed, this is needed, this is needed? I think I looked at the – well, there was a combination of things. I think there was my own personal experiences that I was drawing on in terms of the kind of feel of the program that we want and the gaps in the market and why we wanted this to be a bit different again to other incubator programs or similar kind of programs um, happening. And, of course, there are – Lots of them. Um, but so, yeah, we obviously like, like looked at what's out there and, and but then I guess from personal experiences, understanding the gap and then also looking at what are the top five reasons why startups fail, um, we kind of dived a bit deep into that and, and recognised that, you know, I mean, my core business is a marketing company, Manning & Co, and that's what I started 15 years ago. And, you know, when you look at the top reason why most startups fail, there's no addressable market to begin with. So I, I think that to be honest, some of the like marketing is often overlooked, some basic things like SWOT analysis, your competitor analysis. I've seen loads of people come through or other programs coming then into our program who have been told that if you print something through a 3D printer, that's that's that idea is, is worthy. But if you've got a creative arts business, that's not worthy. Um, 
you know, so there's like a lot of mixed messages out there. And so I think for us looking at those reasons why startups fail too is that we, we cover off and make sure that our young gems have got a really good grasp of the fundamentals. Well, I just like the way, the process of working backwards. It's like, well, if we need to teach people how to be good entrepreneurs, the best thing to do is look at why yeah. entrepreneurs fail and teach those things. You know, they're the first things. Yeah, yeah. It makes sense. And so you've been in – so Young Gems is actually uh, – you, you, I guess you kind of started and did that uh, later in your career once you'd, you know, you'd accomplished quite a fair bit. What about the start – where are you from? Are you from Sydney? Yep, from Sydney. Whereabouts? Um, inner West. Yeah. I'm a yep, Inner West girl. <laughs> still in the Inner West. Uh, my first office was in Balmain and I, I still live in Roselle, so I'm in that area. Um so, yeah, no, I'm from Sydney, went to high school here, but I did leave, live part of my, my childhood in Cairns um, on a fish farm and probably got early taste of family business. Um, it was a very interesting upbringing. Um, I would help out on our fish farm, as you do, and we bred fish and we supplied those fish to all aquariums across Australia and it was a time when aquariums were a big thing, big business, having fish tanks and tropical fish and marine fish and whatnot. So... Yeah, I spent those years were quite fundamental um, being in Cairns. So I also found my passion for J- Japanese. So I, I came back to Sydney pursuing my Japanese language. Um, what, where, how did you get Japanese from Cairns? Because um, there were a lot of, in the 80s, not wanting to disclose my age, but in the 80s, um, there was huge Japanese tourism boom in Cairns, a lot of Japanese coming in and buying up golf courses and all of that. So in Cairns at my primary school, Japanese was the language that you, you had to learn. And I just loved it. Like we had exchange students coming through the school and um, I just loved everything that I was exposed to about Japan, the language, the culture, the food. So it was very, it was in me. And then moving back to Sydney, Japanese wasn't a thing here. It wasn't at my school. So I committed to following my passion and I did Japanese every Saturday at a Saturday school and did it through correspondence and did it for my high school certificate and did my degree um, at UNSW in comms and Japanese. But, um, yeah, so that was quite uh, – but then that led me to moving to Japan after I finished high school. So. Isn't it so weird how someone can just instantly feel connected to something and mm. like something? It's just such a random thing. Like why would this little yeah. little um, uh, white girl from Balmain <laughs> that moves to Cairns just suddenly fall in love with Japanese? Yeah, like, yeah, and then just – all of a sudden it becomes a huge part yeah, of your yeah. of your life. Like yeah. It's just so weird. <laughs> I don't know, is it genetics? Is it, oh, well, what is it? Like, Japanese in a former life, I don't know. Yeah. But, but, yeah, it's a connection that – well, and I have this connection for Singapore as well, which I guess we'll, we'll get to. But, um, yeah, I, and I went and lived in Japan as an 18-year-old. Um, so that was probably really my first – later on later in life when I've been doing interviews about entrepreneurship – I guess when I've really reflected back, that was probably when I really went out of my comfort zone, like to follow something. So I'm being just turned 18 on a plane. My mum was trying to convince me not to go. This wasn't a working holiday visa either. This was, um, sorry, it was a working holiday visa, but not teaching English. So of course, being me, I wanted to do something that's not really a path well-traveled. I was only a few, um, Mostly guys were on the cohort that I was going into. So, but basically, I was trying the deep end, arrived in Japan, been sent to a hotel, and I was working at a hotel for the first six months. No foreigners around me. I was on a little island, four kilometers in diameter, tiny off the mainland. And yeah, as an 18 year old, I was there speaking Japanese every day. And um, 
it was hard experience. I was lonely. I got my HSC results. When all my other, my friends were here, you know, counting down to get your results, I was in a foreign country, so far removed from it all, um, missed out on that kind of, yeah, I guess that, yeah, so when I really stop and think about it, I was really pushing myself out of my comfort zone but and taking a big, not a risk, but putting myself in a situation where I wasn't always comfortable. But I think... So. I think that's the beauty of having a passion is that it gives you the encouragement to mm. get out of your comfort, like to push yourself and do something new. And and by doing something new and, and getting out of your comfort zone, you're kind of learning that pattern. You're, you're gaining confidence every time you do it, but you learn the pattern of doing that. And that is the ultimate business pattern. Like entrepreneurship is literally, yeah. you know, getting out of your comfort zone and throwing yourself in the deep end all the time. And mm. so it's just, like you could very much connect a passionate Japanese to, you know, falling into business. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't really make that connection until much later in life. But um, and that that was probably it was absolutely instrumental, kind of having that experience. And then, yeah, I finished my year in Japan. But again, I did like I ended up venturing off and doing all sorts of other things after the first six months. And then I came back and yeah, got back into Sydney life and did my uni and then got into corporate. I always think that one of the best things people can do is is, uh, you know, experience new cultures and have empathy and understand, you know, different people and different ways of living because it just kind of broadens your your view on the world and, and you know, all the possible kind of thought patterns, you know. When you grow up in one place and you only know one kind of culture, you kind of learn those that culture's thought patterns and you kind of think, okay, they're, they're the patterns. But there's all these other patterns you, you can learn and, and by knowing them all, it's kind of like – you have a – the world is a bigger puzzle for – like, sorry, <laughs> puzzle is probably not the right, right word. You've just got a better vision of the world and when you have a better vision, you're better able to navigate through it and 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 and, and use your vision to, to your advantage. What were things that you you took from the Japanese culture that, that you think have had a tremendous impact on your life, whether it be a business or not, just things that that, that brought to your life? I think being – quite humble and respectful. That definitely came through my my time in Japan. And I think what amazed me was, you know, like you'd have bus drivers wearing their white gloves and absolutely showing such pride in their job or garbage men who would take their jobs so seriously and there would be respect for every job and for everyone doing that. And so I th- and it's interesting because my experience then in Singapore living there is quite different where certain jobs are not respected. Um, but I guess from my experience in Japan, it was this deep respect. Um, and I think with my business experience in Asia, I've always taken respect, um, cultural understanding and being humble too. So in when I lived in Japan, I, I didn't project my own cultural upbringing or, I mean, I would speak Japanese all the time. I wouldn't expect you know, to to be speaking English when I could speak Japanese. And so, um, yeah, I think all of those things around, you know, I'm in another country, I need to respect that myself and I need to not think that everything that we do in Australia is necessarily the right way or the be-all and end-all. And I think that, uh, that early exposure has set me up for success in business in Asia because I have, when we look at founders who are doing it well in Asia and those that haven't been able to maybe be a breakthrough or give it a good go. I think that the cultural aspect and cultural understanding and respect comes into play a little bit. And that respect piece is even like, 
they respect every, you know they respect their job they they have mm. pride in their job and you can transfer that to like everything you do big or small you should do it well yes you know you should yeah. do it correct i mean I, i'm fascinated with you know i remember being in japan and um you know they've got big peaches or big apples like these beautiful fruit and the the way that they pamper you know or, or look after you know their orchards and and during that process or even their milk they say that their milk is some of the best in the world and then you look at how they you know care for their cows it's all very like it's just incredible done like, well you're done, done well, correct absolutely yeah. and you can see the output you know it is yeah quality um yeah, it's yeah. kind of like when someone cooks for you they're like uh, I had this conversation with my fiance the other day. Actually, I was like, I can tell we should, like. I actually cook more. She reckons I don't, but I reckon I cook more nights. But but I'm like, this was not made with love. <laughs> I could tell it was rushed. I was just like, nah, this is not made with love. She was like, yeah, you're right. You know, but when you know when you cook something and you like, you really enjoy it. Like you you, you spend the time, you cut it correctly. You're like, I, that's what I love about mm-hmm. cooking. You can put a podcast on and you can. You really, I suck at cooking, but I cook with love. Yeah. Like if I didn't cook with love, it would be hor- horrendous. But like everything you yeah. do, you, if you do it well, you can totally tell the difference. Mm-hmm. Like, exactly. and so, did you go to Singapore from Japan, or, or what was the no, process in going to Singapore? So Singapore came a bit like maybe five years into after I started my my business. So um, to get there, though, I guess yeah, came home, did uni, then I entered corporate. Well, did marketing comms jobs, but always with an Asia flavor. So my first job was Japanese speaking marketing um, executive in the healthcare sector. So that Japanese stuck, stood with me. Um, and was a strategic advantage for you in the workplace yeah, too. Yeah, it absolutely was. It absolutely was. And so I had this great corporate career. I actually wasn't thinking of going to my own business. I loved my jobs with the, the two companies that I worked at. Um, had a lot of travel, like I was... 23, going to New York, Europe, being part of global marketing. Like I just loved it. But then for me, I I, uh, I married early and I had my first daughter quite young, I guess, in this day and age. So when I fell pregnant with my daughter, who's now 16, um, I was really at the peak, like on a growth trajectory within my corporate career at a young age. So I had these big jobs at a very young age. Um, yeah, you were successful quite young. Had great bosses who were very um, and mentors who, I think they nurtured me and that they would they'd see the potential, give me challenges. Up, like I'd get the job done. And I mean, I just sometimes look at. I mean, I was twenty five with a corner desk. Like I just, you know, I kind of yeah look back and think of where, yeah, twenty five year olds I, I I have on my team or whatnot. And I I don't know. It was a very. I know twenty five year olds can't tie their shoelace. I swear. <laughs> I swear. But what do you think, what what made you special? Like what what made you put yourself in, because you put yourself in those positions. People don't put you, you you give people the opportunity to put mm. you there because you, you, you bring it for yourself. What were you doing? I don't, I didn't ever have a sense of entitlement. I think I had um, coming into the workforce, I've always worked really hard. Um, I worked hard for my Japanese. You think of my commitment doing that on a Saturday even, for example. So I came in with a can-do attitude to all my roles, very, you know, um, yeah, put my head down, worked hard. I didn't expect things. I wanted to show the results and earn the trust of my my team and my bosses and mentors. And I think that that, I just don't know. I mean, that's what has been told to me that's quite 
special or mm-hmm. um, I don't know if it's your everyday. It is special. Um, work ethic is the most ethic. important. I always tell the team mm. whenever we get a new person, even if they're not as experienced as someone else or they're not, uh, you know, as something as someone else, when they have work ethic, that's always the mo- work ethic mm. and ability to connect with other team members. Mm. So like ab- ability to suit the culture because – if they got a good work ethic and they just annoy everyone and everyone hates them, you got a problem anyway. Yeah. And then it's even worse yeah. problem because you're like, oh, got to get rid of them, yeah. but they're amazing at their job. Mm-hmm. Like I hate this. But when someone has that work ethic mm. and 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 they're a positive contributor to the culture of the team, yeah. uh, these people are invaluable and, and actually rare. I agree. I think they're rare. But, I, I mean, to give you an example in those early years, like my – I never had a marketer that I was reporting to, so I was out of uni not having somebody to show me the ropes. But – Rather than me expect my boss to provide that for me, I went out and got my own mentor and, again, externally, you know, got what I needed externally to do my job without having that direct mentor and my t- the global marketing team were elsewhere um, in the US and Europe. But I guess that's that thing showing initiative and showing I'm not expecting anyone to do it for me. You have ownership over yeah, your I'm life. Gonna, oh, you ha- yeah, you st- I'm, I'm assuming you still have it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think all those Ownership factors, over your life. Yeah, Absolutely. So that all kind of, I think, resonated with the people I was working with and those opportunities. They don't just come to, I mean, I think there's a misconception around, oh, you're lucky or, but I, in my experience and anyway, it's been hard work and, and I've that work ethic all the time. Maybe that comes back to my early Cairns days, seeing my mum work on a fish farm and <laughs> seeing my mum always work. Um, I think also, you know, I've, I've just been around workers. My grandmother even was, um, she unfortunately died when my mum was pregnant with me, but she ran businesses in the 1950s before, like it was really a common thing for women. She ran a manufacturing business, um, a laundromat here in Potts Point. No way. Yeah. We have entrepreneurial yeah, genetics. Yeah, there you go. So. It's, it's, it's such a special thing. And, and I also think like to that point, it's something that, you know, even if your family didn't have a business background or an entrepreneurial background, by someone starting it, that first person who starts it, it just makes it so much more likely that the next generation mm. is going to do it. Yeah. You know, there's, 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 it's, it's such a powerful thing that can be learned. And when you have the, I mean, I, I personally believe everybody is lucky. Everybody has something lucky happens in the career. It doesn't matter how low in the chain you started, in the, in the jungle you started, something lucky is going to happen to you. And it's about taking advantage mm-hmm. and not, um, it's about taking every, not taking any opportunity for granted. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. luck. Yeah. The luck's there, but I chose to do something mm-hmm. with that luck. Um, as opposed to, you know, notice all the bad shit that was going on and, mm. and disregard the luck. So I just think it's special how how by, you know, your grandmother, your mother, you, probably your daughter, like, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's, it, it becomes a part of the family almost, mm. like a family has like, you know, we, we, we love business, we do yeah. business, like that's what we do. Yeah, absolutely. So with my grandmother, um, she, what's really quite kind of gives me goosebumps too is that she – well, actually, when my mum found out that I'd won this program in Western Australia for the deaf and hard of hearing with Young Gems, she was in tears. I was like, Mum, why? <laughs> yes, this is a, a big moment, but um, why, why are you so moved? And she said, did you know that your grandmother was employing deaf and hard of hearing people in her manufacturing business back in the, the 50s? 
And like, it was like, what are the chances for me to then be working in this community? And I never knew that about my it's wild. Yeah. So it's, yeah. You know what else is wild? Imagine being a woman in the 50s owning a manufacturing <laughs> <I know>. company. <laughs> that would have been wild. I know. I think she was incredible. Um, as I said, I didn't get to meet her, but I think uh, what she did was, yeah, maybe that all set. Well, she would have been time. a big inspiration. Yeah. You know, I'm sure a lot of people would have looked at her and been like, yeah. wow. She's That's a real cool. game changer. She, yeah. she was no 50s housewife. <laughs> no, no, yeah, she would have been an inspiration for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and so w- when did you get to Singapore then? Because so that's a uh, huge part of your life, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yes, it is. So, um, so yeah, I, 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 one, well, with the corporate bit, I guess I did hit the glass ceiling and I'm, that's how I started my business. So I wasn't actually wanting to go into my business, in, into a business, but it kind of it fell that way that, um, yeah, I, I was kind of booted out when I fell pregnant and had my first I was going to ask, so. what do you mean by glass ceiling? Yeah, so unfortunately I, you hear these stories, but I did experience it firsthand where as soon as I became pregnant, in the corporate world, everything kind of changed. But I had a great boss who was very um, supportive and said, Gemma, you go, have maternity leave and come back when you're ready. But also you can work from home or do whatever. Like today that would be the norm, but say 16 years ago that wasn't necessarily the case. And I mean, he f- unfortunately moved on like about a, a month after I had Charlotte. And then I, my new boss, who is a CEO of an ASX listed company now, um, he was not just for him with a new mother working in the kind of role I had was just he could not fathom that. So he made it very difficult for me to stay and that's, yeah, unfortunately was the end of the corporate career. Um, I think later in life I looked back at that and I realised how traumatic actually it was for me. I think at the time I didn't really process it. It was, okay, what am I going to do? Because I was the breadwinner as well. So that is how Manning & Co came to be. Um, My corporate network knew I had, I was going out on my own and so I, quickly um, built this client base with Manning & Co, a strategic marketing company, really within two years, I think I was shortlisted as um, Telstra Young Business Women's Award uh, finalist for for that. Um, and it was a lady who ran um, Shoes of Prey, Jodie Fox, who, who, who was the winner for that year. But um, it was an exciting time, uh, not, not planned, it just kind of came to be. And then Manning & Co kind of grew quickly. I had my second daughter in all of that. And when she was three, that's when I decided to go to Singapore. But a few things then happened in the process of that. I was um, I was client-led really. One of my Manning & Co clients wanted to take me wherever they were doing business. Um, so we went into, um, did a bit of work in South Africa and the UK and then Asia was part of their plan. So I was spending a lot of time in Singapore and um, that kind of also gave birth to my business, Gemstar, which is around helping companies enter Asia. So um that came to be. I set up an innovation centre in Singapore. Um, again, probably, you know, we're talking about risk and going out of your comfort zone. I had this, I could see the opportunity, I could connect the dots and I thought, yeah, I'm just going to do this. Um, well, things were leading to that, but it was a very ballsy, bold move. I uprooted myself from here with my two girls and moved them across. Um, it's pretty as, cool. As a single mom, yeah, that was, that was quite... Yeah, I mean, it's actually quite a difficult move to make because um, I don't know if you know much about Singapore, but it's not the easiest place for uh, entrepreneurs, even though they're… Great tax system though. Great tax system. Love the tax system. Oh, we yeah, should have yeah. that tax system. Oh my gosh, Everyone would pay taxes. Yeah. I love, I love, yeah. The <laughs> having experienced that and then coming back to Australia's tax system oh. is quite painful. But um, Yeah, I would have ran back again. But it's the, you know, when you're in your own business, you put… 
you, you put everything on the line. So for me, I actually put, I, I risked everything going into Singapore. I, I remortgaged my house. I funded my way to Singapore. But then with children, you've got, okay, suddenly my primary school children need to go to like a 40 grand school a year. Yeah, and the how, international schools. And how They're do all super you expensive. I that as when I've just risked for my business. I don't have, I'm not the trailing spouse. I don't have these reserves. So I homeschooled my daughters for the first nine months in Singapore till, till actually a very clever South African entrepreneur um, started to open up schools in Singapore for more mid-market private schools for international students and then my, got, my daughters got into school that way. But it was nine months of where I, I think I was literally at a nervous breaking kind of moment because the stress, the stress of moving internationally, the stress of having time school, my children, the stress of stuff not going, nothing went right when I first got up to Singapore. So the, the Singapore journey is really of resilience and patience and perseverance. It was not easy. It was not easy. Wow, what a stretch rock of star. the uh, imagination. Um, but now uh, I've been in Singapore, well, the business has celebrated 10 years and this year Manning & Co was um, recognised by Asia Business Outlook as one of the top 10 marketing consultancies in Asia. Um, so I'm quite, I think and then what we advise companies coming into Asia because Manning & Co, that first business of mine, we are sustainable business with some of the most iconic brands in Singapore as clients like DBS. So we walk the talk and with our Gemstar advisory, it's around how to navigate Asia. Um, we're pretty real with our experience um, and we, we also now have Indonesia as well. So from Singapore, I expanded into Indonesia. So we are able to, with boots on the ground, help companies navigate Asia um, and show how it should be done for fast growth SMEs and what as a founder you have to be prepared for to tap really into Asia. And so if so, we've had the Singapore discussion lots of times for, for, for a range of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what are the things – a company like mine, for example, if we were entering Singapore, what are some of the things that you think people need to know? There has to be a, what we were talking about earlier, um, some cultural intelligence and cultural empathy um, and that sense of being humble and understanding the way. Because even though that people think that Singapore, you know, I mean, it is a easier, it's a, an ent- a good entry point, let's say, for for Westerners to go into Asia, um, you know, obviously for all those reasons of English is spoken as the main language and all, all those kind of things. But um, but that shouldn't that shouldn't mean that you dismiss how important the cultural relevance is of and, and how you should culturally conduct yourself in that market. So we see a lot of people. So so there's there's that kind of cultural element that I think also sets apart those who do well and those who don't. So one is I would say you know taking time to be in market and to understand the market, not just from that expat perspective, but really to understand that. And so for me, um, I've got a a fantastic uh, mentor there who is an Australian who's lived in Singapore for 30 years. He was um, on the Queen's honours list recently for his contribution to the Australia-Singapore relationship. So aligning myself with somebody like him was definitely um, part of, you know, sending the right message very early on about having you know, solid people around me. But so it'd be good for someone to find a mentor Correct. like that. Yes. Yeah. So finding a, a mentor or a Your partner. network is always the most important Absolutely. thing. <laughs> it's totally I keep so telling true. everyone. <laughs> I, I'm, I believe you. <laughs> it's so true. Um, so understanding the market, spending time in market, 
being able to also not just surround yourself with the expat community, being able to understand that the local the local market and and because um, there's a whole thing you know as you, if your business is to grow there around um, yeah like having a local team how that works what the culture is there um, there's lots that goes really into it um, with Phil my mentor he even though Australian he's um, with the Singapore Institute of Company Directors and he's um, so he he kind of is uh, celebrated in the Singapore business community as much as the Australian business community so that's kind of helped open up that kind of side for things for me as well. But I think, yeah, they're the, and also the other thing I would say is it's perseverance and patience. It doesn't happen overnight. So I will have some companies or founders coming up and going, you know, okay, if I don't have a business deal after the first two or three meetings, I'm going to like, Singapore's been a waste of time for me. And it's like really like you have to. Some people are dumb, aren't they? It really is crazy. <laughs> it's just arrogance that really annoys me. You think because, arrogance yeah. or idiocy? Oh, probably that too. Because I just like, it, it, and the, the topic is not just Singapore, like for Singapore, the topic is entering a new market. Yeah. You know, if you're entering a new market, it doesn't matter if you've got it. Yes, there's a lot of advantages in that you know how to run your business and you, you, you're probably financially quite strong and, and, and your systems and operations are good and you could probably send a couple of people there too. But no one knows who you are, you know, and yeah. and that brand mm. and that trust and like that whole element is is essential. Like you, you you're not going to grow as fast, or, or you know, it's going to be a slow slog in a new in a new area if they don't know who you are. Yeah. And maybe the lesson there is start doing some sort of maybe have a bit of a soft entrance, yeah. you know, or yeah. So that was my experiences. I did probably about twelve or maybe two years of work up like by by being still in Sydney and. And being there though and kind of networking, finding people. Um, so I, I did two years of kind of groundwork before I then invested in the actual expansion and growth and incorporation and, and all of that. But, um, yeah, I think perseverance and patience is also key. So yeah, that's what we – It's starting a business again. Like yeah. that's that's yeah. kind of how I'm – like I started this uh, BOA, mm. the kind of like Cub Digital, and, you know, it's definitely been hard. Like – me and Laura, we, we, actually, we have another lady. She's amazing. She just joined our team from. She, she was at Canva bef, be, before, as a senior community manager and affiliate marketing manager, and one. She's she's awesome. Uh, she actually lives in the Sunshine Coast, and I am very well known for having people in the office next to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's a very new experience yeah. for me. But she's been amazing, actually, and so she's really opening up my eyes. Mm-hmm. Why am I talking about Beck again? I can't remember. Anyway, starting a new company, yeah. uh, starting a new company is hard. Mm-hmm. Even when I know how to run a company and it's doing the same mm-hmm. thing essentially, like you're starting scratch. It's still a new brand. It's still a new team. Like even just building your team, there. That's where yeah. I was going with it. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've only got one person. We've got or three. Me, Beck, and Laura. You know, we've got yeah. a three-person team. You, it's only so much you can yeah. do with three people, and you really have to choose. Like of all the things a company mm. could have a need, mm. like what are the things that are most important? And who's going to focus on what of those things? You know, it's, mm. it's, it's, it's hard starting starting yeah. a company, no, even absolutely. when you're good at it. And then, as you were saying, like new markets and new geographies. I mean, there's a lot of then trust that you're putting in to those teams as well. So, so my experience with me being now back in Sydney after being up there for five years, um, yeah, you know, it's it's. It's, it's a balancing act because you're, you know, managing 
even though you've got team and structure and processes, you're still um, trying to keep up appearances. So I've got um, a foot in both countries essentially. So yeah. I'm still a Singapore uh, on an EP visa. I'm a tax resident here. I've got my my children back here in school in Australia, um, but I still keep a, a small place there. I still pay, so I'm I'm literally my life is <laughs> extremely complicated. Let's just say, but, <laughs> very complex. But it, it the, like one thing that in Singapore's not too bad for time zones, but one thing that so many people say to me is that the biggest issue they have with expanding overseas is just the time difference. Mm. They, their work life just expands dramatically because yeah. they're working early morning all yeah. the, into the night time yeah, and that impacts your family, yeah, impacts your health. It imp- yeah. like, it's true. It's a big ask. Living with Singa- I mean, it's two, two hours now, but when it goes to three hours, I definitely feel that extra hour, which is for six months of the year. And so it is true because my day starts, I'm online here. But then I have to have those extra three days at the back end of the day. Um, and I try to manage it as best I can with my commitments. But, yeah, it's not easy. And, um, imagine doing it, like, in London. Oh, God. <laughs> that, yeah. would be, that would be chaos. Yeah. But, yeah, it is, it's, it's definitely hard. And, and what made you return to, to Australia? Well, for, Other than it being the best country in the world despite its tax system. Of course, yes, system. despite the tax. Um, no, it was actually we was, – I was – not stuck there because I was living there, but during COVID, I guess I didn't realise at the time that we would be there for the two years not coming home during that time. So as soon as the borders opened, I needed to get my girls back to see their dad. They hadn't seen their dad for two years, so that was challenging. And the age group, the ages that my daughters are at, they were much, very much like, mummy, we want to now be back in Australia. So it was my daughters that, especially my eldest daughter who really um, went head to head. She's a good debater. She was like... I need to get home. I need my transitional year before you're 11 and 12. And I was like, just stay one more year. <laughs> no, mummy. So it's it's been good for them, for the family. But for me, it's probably actually the reason why I joined Cub was to get reconnected back into Sydney because um, I, I've struggled with my transition back and being back here is, um, I think psychologically for me, it was like, am I taking a step back, not progressing so I like to always progress and move forward and I've had to really adjust my thinking to it's not a step back, it's not, but it's... You can feel like it because you're stepping right back and the other side of yeah, exactly, right down under. Um, so I've just had to work a little bit on my thinking and how I approach that in that it's actually, if anything, trying to further grow the business um, and, and different markets here and what's been achieved up there. Um, well, it's funny because I actually started Cub for a similar reason. I was actually kind of like your eldest daughter in the sense of I lived overseas at a similar age to her. So I did my high schooling. uh, I I went to an international school. So I did my high schooling overseas. And, well, most of it. I graduated at Review, St. Nation College in Review. So I did year 11, 12 there. Year 7, 11, 12 there. Okay. Um, and, And I think that was the best thing that my parents ever did to me. Yeah. So I think that you're, and I, I always believe that it's, it, it's what gave me a huge advantage over everybody else in Australia. Mm-hmm. So I, I would imagine that, you know, your daughters would have that. And to be honest, that's kind of what you did when you left early and you went to Japan. Yeah. Like it, I feel like it gives you a huge, huge advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of, so when I moved back to Australia, um, I, I didn't know... I had experienced networking and I had actually experienced a lot of members clubs and I went to the international school. Mm. 
and I mean, you probably saw the only kids really at international schools are, are, are the kids of um, really big uh, uh, family businesses and or, or corporate businesses and things like that and politicians and whatnot. Mm. And so you're doing a lot of networking. Yeah. You, you don't realise it. You're just being friends with, you know, your yeah. kid. But 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 really you're, you're, you're exposed to such a big world of business and you see how um, people help each other and, and how certain things happen. And when I came back to... Um, to Australia, I, I did the same thing as you. I maybe two years after I came back, when I was a bit older. Sorry, I went back to Europe to Paris for college, and then I came back again. So okay. when I came back again, I was like, "Well, I don't really know anyone outside of my cousins." Okay. And um, and the members clubs here didn't really look um, uh, too cool. Mm-hmm. Um, they were like the old men's clubs uh, and things like yeah. that. And I was like, "Oh, I don't really want to be part of that." And I don't think they'd have me anyway. So um, so that's how Cub started. It was like yeah. same reason you joined, to, to meet business people yeah. and to bring people together and kind of create that modern face of Australian well, it's been, business. It's been a highlight actually. It's helped me to just resettle back into <laughs> to Sydney and to meet some really good like-minded mm. people. That's what I needed to do is to surround myself with like-minded people to also feel that I'm still progressing my entrepreneurial journey in, in the markets, I've, I've developed that presence and I can do it from here and I just need to do it from here. But it's well, Have we ever promoted to the community the fact that you can help people enter the Singaporean market? Mm-hmm. We should totally do that because I reckon there would be a lot of Cub members, like even us. Mm-hmm. For me, it's just the tax thing. I'm just yeah. like, I think the tax system's great. It's just 15% flat, isn't it? And that's it. You know what's fine with that? I don't mind paying 15%. No matter how much I earn, no. I will give you 15%. No. I will not try to hide a dollar. Oh. You don't hide it, but you, so I, I won't try. <laughs> I'll give it to you. It's just all, all these billionaires that go live overseas, live in London, get, become a non-don. You, know, you don't get any of that. Everyone's like, yeah, I'll stay in this country and I'll spend my money in this country and you can take 15% of all my money I earn in this country or it's earn everywhere. really quite something. Like you really feel... The, the, the difference when you come back, it was like a real shock to the system because now I have to pay double because I'm – Singapore and Australia. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're fucked. Sorry. So, yeah, sorry that, so that, that's done. That, you, that, that's the worst. <laughs> but I guess for your members it's probably – I'd highly recommend if possible to do a stint if you can with your business there. I mean it really – it's helped me get – I wouldn't have got ahead to be honest if I'd stayed here in Australia without expansion expanding. So, yes, it was a risk. Yes, it – I invested myself in that growth. But what I've got from it and what the business has achieved, um, I mean, I built that Singapore business much more quickly than I did my in those early years here in Australia. And to be honest, it's I'm new in the market, so I'm proving myself in an international market quite, yeah, without having the networks actually. It's quite interesting, but highly recommend it. So if anyone wants to talk about Singapore. Yeah, well, me and you should catch up after. We'll, um, we'll organise a meeting because – we could talk about doing like a Singapore partnership so like all the Cub people know. Um, we could even have like an event for the community where if you are interested in entering Singapore or Asia, I think the other couple other countries you do, you know, this is a – we can have a thing where we educate yeah, people how yeah. to do that and, and start Absolutely. exploring that for people because yeah. there's so many people in Australia in general, obviously at Cub, that are at a stage where they're kind of like – sorry, using Cub as the example, once we've got Brisbane which is opening – very soon, it's kind of like, well, those are the three kind of biggish markets we've got. It's like after that, I could look at Adelaide, Perth. We are actually doing Parramatta um, and Gold Coast and have I missed one? Canberra. I don't know. That's that's pretty much the markets. 
Um, shout out to the rest of Australia. I know you're awesome mm-hmm. too. But realistically, mm-hmm. sometimes the smarter choice, it, it could be, all right, well, once you've got the, the major markets, it's like, well, what's the next closest market that's, right. that's close to Australia that's not, you know, Europe mm-hmm. or America? It's Singapore. Singapore. Yeah, it's a real strategic, yeah. clever location. It's a great landing pad. Yeah. And then we could even do something uh, with BOA. We could do a lot of, of we'll yeah. talk, we'll take this offline anyway because I'm basically having a meeting with you on the podcast. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <But> <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on today. You're really a rock star. I thoroughly enjoyed uh, listening to your story. I can't believe you, you you moved you and your two daughters to Singapore and homeschooled them while starting a business. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah, it's uh, mental and crazy but I yeah. live to tell the tale. <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, so thank cool. You. Thank you. But um, if you could share one or, or one or two key life or business lessons, let's say your, your daughters are entering business, they're starting their own business, if you could give them one piece of advice, what would that be? Well, I think there's maybe two, two themes. One is uh, probably coming back to the work ethic. I think that that's a key message for, for the girls. Um, I think they've been exposed to that just by being around me and, and my mom and but I think definitely you know don't expect things you, you do need to have a good work ethic and that will carry you far um, but the other thing is a bit of kindness so I do have uh, I don't know if you know but I've read a book called about this girl and that is actually about my journey as a Australian female entrepreneur expanding into Singapore um, and the second book I've got is coming um, soon and that's called Business the Heart Way. So I do feel quite strongly about kindness in business and, and ethics in business around doing things the right way, doing right by other people. Um, I've seen probably too much of shoddy stuff or, or stuff go on that um, for me it's I think a bit more kindness um, in leadership and in, in business. So business the heart way is something that I would also impart to them. One thing I love about SMEs is that I find that that ethics and that kindness is more prevalent because the owner is such, it's theirs in the sense and, and their team are like a family often and you, you get that more, you know, whereas you get into the corporates and it's kind of a dog eat dog. Yeah, it's no one's yeah. company. No one really cares about what happens. It, it, that that the empathy for people mm. kind of leaves, and you're yeah. you're so far removed from your actual clients as well. So you can't like it, that ethics. And I tell the team because we're in the people business cup. I tell the team that the most important thing we can do is just be good people. Yeah. When you're a good person, you meet other good people. Good people help you. When you fall, you got someone to catch yeah. you. You you know you. Feel, I completely agree. And and if to any of our listeners, if you want to um, uh, uh, purchase and, and get Gemma's books, you can go to cup.club forward slash podcast and we'll put links there. We can put links there. Yeah, have you given them to us? Awesome. That is true and factual what I just said. Um, as well as find uh, Gemma's uh, you know, favorite quote, key lessons in business and other things, along with our other incredible podcast guests. And if you want to catch up with Cub on social, it's at Club United Business. It's also very awesome. Gemma, thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Like I said, I, really, I, I need to just stop this episode. I've been dragging it out a bit too long. But <laughs> but I had a wonderful time with you. Thank you. Speaking it was my to you. pleasure. Likewise. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the show.